recovery entails that there's something sick going on otherwise. In the last episode, I had mentioned that whenever we do something good, it is because we are showing our love to Christ for everything he has already done for us. But there's also another component. It's because we can't do anything else. Now, obviously, you still fight the old Adam, but you are, in essence, a new creature. We now reflect his nature. The whole idea with Reconstructionists, theonomists, talking about specific actions being indicative of bigger issues if you don't get to the root of this tiny little thing that's out of order, it's a slippery slope and could very well reflect how your soul is just basically going to hell. Which then makes people very, what's the word, into everybody's business? Here's a story. Conversation with the pastor, right? We're talking and the pastor says, it's not the pastor's job to be pointing out people's flaws constantly. Coming from the Reconstructionist camp, the first thing that goes through my head is, then what the heck are you doing? Well, if I think that that's the pastor's job, to constantly be pointing out everything that people are doing that's wrong, how will a pastor know all the little flaws that somebody has in his congregation? How? Likely by being a busybody. How else are you going to know unless you're constantly with this magnifying glass over everybody's lives? Is it your business as a human being to be that constantly judging over somebody else? And I know what y'all are going to say. Well, then whose job is it? If it's not the pastors to correct, whose is it? Now, I didn't say. It's not the pastor's job to correct people. What I said was that it's not the pastor's job to constantly be pointing out everyone's flaws. Someone comes to you for counsel, correct what the heck is going on. But you constantly saying, oh, you're doing this, that's bad. You're doing this, that's bad. It's a completely different motivation. You're just trying to clean up act for an outward show. You are. And here's another problem. In addition to the pointing out and being a busybody, the only way that you can do that is if you also become a gossip. It goes hand in hand. I know pastors who have done it and laymen. We're going to just call them laymen. And it's a problem because they're now redefining gossip. So of course they're going to redefine busybody. They don't say, oh, I'm not being a busybody. I'm not trying to, you know, spy on people. I'm trying to just be aware. People say, oh, I'm not gossiping. I'm warning people what is going on so that they don't fall into it, or sharpening the analytical skills by using someone as an object lesson. The stuff that falls under warning people so that they don't get involved in something is so broad. Let me tell you, I have had so many conversations with people in the Reconstructionist movement that I have absolutely no business knowing about. Many things about how people dress. They're linking character traits now to the way that the person dresses. Oh, well, because she wore this and I wouldn't, then that means that she's this kind of person. I'm not going to get into a modesty thing. That's going to be another story another time. But the motivation behind addressing somebody's outfit is often just because they want to talk about how surprised they were. You think that without you saying something, God's will is not going to be done. 
And I'm not saying he doesn't use people. And there's all these dichotomies I have to guard against because the reconstruction is like, oh, well, you're saying this. Well, then what about this extreme over here? If you do that, then this is going to happen. No, that's not true. It's just you absolutely have no middle ground. How people raise their kids is another one. What they do or do not allow them to do. When they decide to spank them. If they decide to spank them at all. These things may be true. Maybe the kid did this, they did not receive spanking. Kid did this, they did receive spanking. Kid did this, nothing was said. Kid did this, this was said. Too harsh, not harsh enough. Whatever. They can eat this at 10 o'clock at night. They're not allowed to eat this. They wear this. They don't have a jacket on in certain what I've heard that. They didn't put their kids in jackets and it was X degrees outside and I can't believe they would not care about their children in that way. Arbitrary connections between actions that have nothing to do with the motivation they're ascribing to it. I'm not making this up. It's being so infatuated with what everybody else is doing in the name of being a judge of the earth or in the name of we have to be on guard of this evil that's coming up to our gates and all this nonsense. It is not your business whether or not the kid's wearing a coat in 40 degree weather. It's not. If you're really concerned about that, bring it up to them. But I caution you because it's not your kid and you don't know what happened at home. And it has nothing to do with morality. Like you're making morality an issue over everything. I understand there's no neutrality because there's a moral component clearly taking care of yourself when it's too cold, when it's too hot, when you're hungry, when you're thirsty is part of the under umbrella of good stewardship. But you can't describe an evilness to a person who doesn't put their kid in a coat when you think it's cold out. Like legit. So when a pastor says that they are not supposed to be concerned primarily with pointing out everyone's flaws and shortcomings. The Reconstructionists will automatically assume that that means that that pastor thinks that they are not concerned with morality at all. When the actuality is that the pastor is saying that they are not called to be a busybody in other people's affairs. It is worse to be a busybody in other people's affairs and become God, essentially, like keeping your eye out on everything and, and you know, coming up with some sort of an idealistic judgment that you would have happen in your mind. Oh, you know, those kids are going to get sick. And you know what? It's just going to teach them a lesson, you know, not wearing the coat. It is worse to be doing the busybody and, you know, maybe correct someone, you know, that like appendage of goodness that comes out of that. It is worse. That whole scenario is worse than shutting up and risking something a little less than perfect happening. Why? Because it's about relationships. And if you break your relationship by being a controlling freak, you've failed in your first responsibility. I am not addressing, oh, someone's having an affair. I'm not going to say anything. All right. Everything that comes out of my mouth, I have to clarify and, and, and caveat everything. And that goes to show you the kind of climate it really is to be in the reformed reconstructionist theonomist camps, because they'll take everything you say and split every hair. Or maybe it's not splitting hairs. Maybe it's like just giving everything a colonoscopy because 
they just want everything to mean what they mean and they're not willing to listen to another point of view. Here's something else that the pastor said in light of like the gossip and what a pastor's job is supposed to do. And he says, so what is commanded to the parents in the fifth commandment? The parents. I'm like, uh, well, I mean, I guess it's telling the parents to raise the kids right. He was like, yeah, but no. It's calling the parents to emulate Christ. Now, is that splitting hairs? Is that, well, yeah, I just said that kind of thing. But it's a very significant difference because you can get your kids to do anything that's correct through any kind of means. Many times manipulation, guilt tripping, it's gaslighting. You can get them to do stuff and they can do all the things properly. Or you can be an example of what Christ is and you're giving and you're loving and you're nurturing your correction and your kids can be flying off the handle. That is a better scenario than it is for you to get your kids to do what's right through any means available to you. You are called to live for Christ and to do your job well. If they don't want to listen, that's one thing. Because souls are not converted through external means. Like, just because your kids behave doesn't mean they're saved. You're so concerned about the external outputs rather than the inputs. Yes, raise your kid right. But that automatically goes, in the Reconstructionist mind, it automatically goes, make sure your kids do this. Yes, you teach them to do that, but don't make sure they do that. It is a completely different motivation. The kid will do a lot of things in order to not get spanked or disciplined and then grow up and go to hell. Was that a success? You got your kids to be raised right, but they were damned because it didn't sink in. They had no relationship with Christ. You probably didn't emulate Christ properly. They were just scared of you. Do you think that's what a relationship with Christ is? You know, a lot of kids who grew up thinking that God's just gonna strike them with lightning if they don't do what's right and so they do the things and it doesn't penetrate anything as far as their heart and soul. Give me your heart, my son, the proverb writer says. And it's funny because theonomist, theonomist, oh, the theonomic reconstructionist will say proverbs all the time, give me your heart, give me your heart. I don't think they know what they're talking about. I don't think that most theonomic reconstructionists actually know who God is. They don't know how to have a relationship with Christ. Why? Because it's reflected in how they don't have relationships with their kids. The kids are greatly behaved. Some of the best kids, they're homeschooled. They're the model citizens. But it is the washing of the outside of the cup. Let me tell you this again. There's no actual comfortableness between parent and child. The child should be able to share anything on their heart, even if it's ugly. The parent should be able to comfort and soothe and encourage no matter what information they're given about their child's development as they're expressing it to you, as opposed to a parent saying, you know, like, you shouldn't think this way, you have to think this way. Telling them to think this way and telling them to think that way is not the end of the game. If you say those things, you've got to at least explore how to get there. If the kid has a broken leg and you tell them the hospital's down the street and you walk off, it doesn't help them walk to the hospital. They can know all the things about where the hospital is, what they'll do to help them, the fact that they need a hospital. It doesn't get them there. Pick them up, 
or call an ambulance and get them to said hospital. Don't tell them to think a thing and then go about your merry way and be wigged out that they're not thinking that way. Nurture how to change thoughts. That comes through a relationship with Christ. How do you gain a relationship with Christ? Learn about who he is. How do you learn about who he is? Well, obviously scripture, but from a parent's point of view, be that emulation of Christ. Show them the love when it's undeserved. Don't punish them as harshly as you think they deserve. Do what you think Christ is supposed to be doing to you. But again, you think that Christ is coming down like a bolt of lightning on you. So what are you going to do with your kids? I got to show you something. I was talking to this lady and I just, I, I was so flabbergasted at what was coming out of her mouth that I had to write it down. So I said, whether people spank or not, comma, the bigger point of parenting isn't the method of discipline as much as making sure the parents show love toward the child and create a relationship with them so they would be likely to respond well to correction. That was all I said. You ready? She said the point of discipline and spanking in particular is to make sure the child feels the sting of sin and death, also known as the blue stripes in Proverbs. Maybe, but that was also not what I said. Like, like she was already talking about like, oh, well, whether or not you said whether or not spanking, well, they have to be spanked. I'm not arguing with her observation. But the fact that she wouldn't just say, oh, yeah, absolutely. A relationship with your child is paramount. She was like, ah, spanking. Got to spank them. I wanted to say that it's not the parent's responsibility to make them feel the sting. Because that is God's responsibility to convict. So you are saying that it's the parent's responsibility to convict their conscience. No, it's not. But I didn't say that to her. What I did say instead to try to bring it back on the topic of parent-child relationship, a child won't feel anything that they should feel without love as the base. Again, how do you foster the desire to listen to correction? If a parent spangs all day long with no love, the child will become resentful. I'm trying to bring this conversation back to relationship with Christ being represented in relationship with parent-child. And the fact that Christ, or God, the father, does not discipline his child by spanking them every time they're amiss. And then I told her, children disobey because they do not love properly. And parents do not discipline well because they do not love well. She says, or maybe because there's sin in the world. It's like, yeah, sin taints love. It doesn't matter if you're spanking or not. Like, stop it. Just because you've been like, <laughs> this, just because this has been beaten into you doesn't mean it was correct. Then I said, a rod and staff was used to keep a sheep from going astray by corralling them back into the path. It wasn't actually primarily used to beat them up, which is the argument against spanking and has some points to consider, especially since many parents spank in the heat of their anger to relieve themselves of how they feel rather than to teach a child what they should do. Again, I'm not actually advocating for no spanking here. That's not the issue here. But if you're going to be honest about what you're reading in scripture, you have to know why analogies exist. So stop with the rod and staff means beat somebody up. When nothing in scripture talks about, like, directly 
how you are using that principle. You have to make a couple of assessments to get to how you're using spanking today. It's not that cut and dry. And so if you're going to start demonizing people who choose not to use spanking as a mode of discipline, you're barking up the wrong tree because it's about where the love is coming from. It's about if there's a relationship between the child and the parent that the child is willing to listen to correction. That's what your job is, parent. It's not about getting your kid to do the things. This is the problem. She said, a rod is not pleasant to the sheep. It's like, duh, because it's going contrary to their will. If you simply speak and tell the kid no, that's annoying to them. You don't have to beat them to get them to be unpleasantified. But I cried again to reiterate, we do not discipline for results. We don't. We're not supposed to. Again, not talking about mode of discipline being superior, inferior. I'm talking about if there is no love, doesn't matter how amazing your modes of discipline are. And the child can tell. You can't just say, I'm showing you love by smacking you, or I'm showing you love by sending you to your room. Say it all you want, honey. It's not going to compute if there's not actually the, the, the representation of love there. Love is very loose of a word. Like everybody has their own ideas of what that's going to look like. And unfortunately, I don't have the time to dive into that here. But you know the concept of what I'm talking about. It's not to get results. You cannot tell me, you cannot tell anyone, you cannot find it in scripture where love is getting your kids to do what's right. Getting them to do it. Hear the words coming out of my mouth. So after that, she changed the subject. I just couldn't believe that there was just nothing she could actually just agree upon. There was no like, yeah, parents need to show love to their children. 100% agree. I, I think the best way to do that is by this mode of discipline. Like, great, we're on some common ground here. But it was simply like, no, have to discipline that. No, have to discipline this way. No, have to discipline this way. Like, in the way that it, the conversation went down. It was just like, so foreign to consider that parents need to show love to their kids like that was the impression of the whole conversation it was over like the course of 20 minutes it really angers me you are willing to sacrifice the relationship between you and your child in order to obtain having a family that looks great there are very few healthy relationships between the adult kids i know like the my age people who are just having their toddlers now and their parents in the reformed theonomic reconstructionist camp there's admiration there's respect there's no love there's no actual i'm going to share my heart with you and any form of that is really out of a sense of guilt it's not real once the alcohol amongst the presbyterians start flowing and you get a little loose you learn the truth here's another proof about the whole like relationship between god thing and how you know oh parent's job, pastor's job, get you to do the right thing, point out all the problems at the expense of a relationship. A Method for Prayer by Matthew Henry. Now, I'm not knocking it necessarily because there are two problems. There's the one problem where people just think it's daddy, God, king in the sky kind of thing. I don't know, daddy in the sky. What, I don't know what they call him. This casuality that, that, misses the fact that he is the king of the universe, he is sovereign, he is lord of all, and he deserves your reverence and respect. So in order to counter that casuality, that flippancy when you come before the throne, 
there's the do opposite direction, the one I've been raised in, where you cannot approach God until all of your ducks are in a row. They won't say that that way, but that is what it amounts to. Matthew Henry wrote a book called A Method for Prayer, and it's modeled around the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and so on and so on, because that is the perfect method, right? And so it was like, okay, so Christ prays to the Father by first glorifying who he is and recognizing that he is God that he's approaching, asking for his necessities, ending with thankfulness, amen, very loosely speaking. That's a great method. Christ came up with it. Okay? So there's that. But then there's also the people who decide that you can't pray any other way. And when you do pray another way, or if you miss any of those points, or, or if something's off a little bit, you're in sin for not recognizing who you're talking to. Somehow you've, you've transcended into the cocky category. The ultimate message is you can't approach God until you get your life in order first. And that's the exact opposite of what prayer is. It makes you really afraid to pray to the one person, God, that is supposed to be there for you even when human beings aren't. It's not a dichotomy between we talk trash to him like one of our locker room buddies versus we need to memorize a script. And then there's the whole like, everything has to be an object lesson. Oh my gosh, everything has to be an object lesson of some kind or bring something back to morality. It is not enough to pray for someone's emotional well-being. For example, our pastor prayed for, like our current pastor, who's not a theonomist or reconstructionist, he prayed for a situation that happened in our town that involves a cop, and, and the victim, they both died in the altercation. The Reformed Reconstructionist Theonomist movement would be all over this. If they were going to pray for this, there would be something along the lines of, you know, help our nation see this situation as X, Y, and Z for their political agenda. That cops are bad, that cops are good, that this and the other, what kind of crime it was. Like, open people's eyes unto this big principle. Whereas the prayer that I listened to about the situation was simply be with the families of the hurting. The cop who passed away has family. The victim has family too. They're hurting. Doesn't matter who done it. And it could be a very vulnerable time for them. Perhaps their ears would be more open to receiving the truth if somebody were to go to them. If they're searching for answers for their pain, perhaps God would lead them to him. Show them himself. That would that would be that would never be in a prayer in the Theonomic Reconstruction. Never. Imprecatory prayers are the wet dream of the Theonomic Reconstructionists. David has a slew of them. It is not a sin to wish that justice be done. Sin has to be serious to us. And America at large does not take sin seriously. But as far as this camp is concerned, there's this glee. There's this underlying happiness about two things, about pissing people off when you talk to them about the truth and 
seeing people die in their sins and being burned in hell for eternity. I'm not making this up, man. I've been raised in this. There's some sort of twisted happiness when it happens. There's cheering when the Castros die, okay? And yes, when the people have a wicked authority over them, they mourn and, you know, they're rejoicing when they die in that sense that they are relieved. But not about their soul. Even God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Why do we? I remember going to a conference one time and the, the sermon was about imprecatory prayers. At the end of it, he's going to pray imprecatory prayer. Duh. And he prays and everyone, that was a great prayer. One of the greatest prayers I've ever heard. I remember hearing like four people after this conference, like talk to him, like how awesome the prayer was. Like there are churches that, where the, the prayers would go 10, 15 minutes long because after, you know, it's, it's prating. You know what that word is? Look it up. It's prating. It's prattling on just to fill the air with your own voice because you're just praying the method hardcore. You're praying it legit. I'm going to, you know, because you are this God, you are that God, you are the other God, you are comma, you are this comma God, you are that comma God, you are this, you can kill this and you can screw this guy up and, and we know you've got power and we, we're not afraid and, and like, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with this, but it's part of a whole mindset. Like, yes, we want evil to be destroyed. And if that comes from the wicked having to be killed and thrown in hell, so be it. But there's also another way that you can destroy the wicked, and that is through conversion, because then their wicked man is gone. Pray for the healing of their families, even if they would not be converted. Because it is still common grace that you're asking, please let rain fall on the ground to end this drought, even if some wicked farmer benefits kind of thing. That's what's missing with this method for prayer, frankly, nonsense, because it, it's, it sacrifices the idea of a relationship with Christ and subs whatever else. Somehow praying for the simplistic, be with the families, comfort them kind of a prayer is just not cool enough. To a reconstructionist, it's almost embarrassing that we would need him on those little things. He's just a big thing, God. He's just a, I will move mountains, God. He's not a, he can heal your paper cut too, you know. If you go into the emergency room and you're not, you're not doing too hot, how are you going to convince the receptionist that you need to go in first? You're going to play up how horrifically you feel and what the damage is, right? Maybe even make it bigger than it really is because you need the doctor. You're going to be like, no, it's not that bad. I mean, I don't even know what I'm really here. I'm going to go home, man. Like, if Christ is the great physician, you're going to want him to look at you first. Obviously, Christ sees everybody. God sees everything all at the same time. Like, you don't have to fight for his attention. But, like, the concept is still there. Like, please come to me. Somehow, that's embarrassing for a Reconstructionist, a theonomist. Because that would represent some sort of a weakness. Again, I'm not telling you what I heard in some reformed theonomy class. I'm talking about how it's extrapolated in the real world in real time. When all of those ideologies from the movement are seeped into the young soul growing up in it, this is how it plays out. It doesn't really matter what fancy words they chose. This is the reality of it. And that's the whole point of my channel here and my podcast. So you start, if anybody starts coming at me, it was like, where did you hear that? 
screw it. I didn't hear that. It's the movement that breeds that, okay? After you have so many mutant genes in the in the DNA pool, that's what happens. I'm, I'm getting ready to hear somebody say, well, won't it be passivity to tell people to just concentrate on Christ and not clean their act up? Won't people just try to reap Christ's blessings then because they just want to do what they want and, you know, oh, well, I'm in church and I know who Jesus is and I'm going to live like the world. And won't they just try to reap God's blessings and, and they won't really feel the pinch of sin like that lady said earlier. How dumb do you think God is? You think he's a freaking idiot, don't you? Do you really think someone's going to be able to sneak in as a hypocrite and God miss it? Do you really distrust God that badly? It's not your job to create the passion in that person to do what's right, to be what's right. If you're a light in the world, get this. The light bulb is in one place, hitting whatever it hits. The light bulb doesn't just spring up legs one day and be like, yo, you can't be wearing that. Take it off. It is much easier to conjure up a form of manipulation to get people to do what you want them to do. To get them to do what's going to make the church look good. To get them to do what's going to make the family look good. It's a lot easier because then you feel safe suddenly like, okay, everything looks good. I just cleaned my room, but there's skeletons in the closet. It's a lot harder to wait on God's timing for things. There was a pastor once that said that he didn't preach on certain topics with his congregation because his congregation should know better about that by now. He's going to preach on the big, big and bad stuff, like political involvement, like going out into the community as opposed to like, oh, I don't know. Don't have adultery. Instead, you're going to stay with your expository style of preaching, which is, I love that. But if there's a topical issue that needs to be addressed, you're not willing to change up your comfy routine to address it. Are you getting the vibe that there's some inconsistency here? Because I just talked about all this, like, pastors wanting to be in everybody's business and busybodying. But at the same time, they don't want to address topics from the pulpit because it's going to ruin their, their shindig. It all boils down to relationships. Like, whatever they do, whatever the Reconstructionists end up doing, whether it's like, I'm going to be talking about all these little nitpicky things, or I'm not going to talk about anything. It all boils down to... I'm going to do anything to avoid having a relationship with them. It was a matter of, with this pastor, I need my congregation to be at a certain point and I'm not willing to go into the mud with them to meet them where they're at. Because it's all about looking a certain way. Westminster Confession, right? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The Reformed Reconstructionist Theonomous is going to say that glorify means to make sure that everything adheres to the rules. Because adherence to the rules reflects who God is. Mm. It's being afraid that God's not big enough to deal with the intangibles of human nature. You're trying to do it. It's another form of works righteousness. I've said that in the first podcast and channel. It's covering with fig leaves, if you want to look at it another way. It's being afraid that God's not going to do his job and then trying to cover up your act with what you've done. Instead of having the sacrifice, Christ's blood covering what you did and relieving you of that pressure. And in turn, because of all this, it's a generational curse. And then you've got these pained, hurt kids who are now raising pained, hurt kids. Because they don't know who God is. They've heard that he's a God of love. Yeah, yeah, whatever. 
but as far as understanding that for themselves it they don't even flip the radar with it we are supposed to reflect god's nature through our actions because we are god's nature there is nothing physical in this world that can get that to happen nothing it is a metaphysical transformation reformed theonomic reconstructionism at the end of the day tries to make that metaphysical into something that they can control sorry if this was a little convoluted but it's hard to swim through shit